Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are continuing our COVID-19 online learning experience for our students at Wisconsin Lutheran College. This session is for uh, Theology 105, Introduction to Scripture, so our freshman class uh, going through the whole Bible in a semester. And we've gotten to the point where we got to the pastoral epistles, but we're also going to talk about the means of grace in the ministry here. Uh, students have, have read First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, and so they're familiar with this, and we're just going to highlight some things. Um, <clears throat> when we use the word, the term pastoral epistles, we're talking about Pauline epistles, so written by St. Paul, but not the ones that are tied to a specific town or a region, so the congregation in Rome, or the two letters of the congregation in Corinth, or to the Galatian congregation, to the Ephesian uh, congregation, the one in Philippi, or Colossae, or, or Thessal Thessalonica but written to pastors, two pastors, Timothy and Titus. So two, list, two letters to Timothy and then Titus. I, you know, I debate this, go back and forth, but I, I just for the sake of uh, my, my students here, will put Philemon in the pastoral epistles just because it is a pastoral letter, as in like Paul is being very pastoral here to a specific situation. He's being pastoral into all of them, of course, but uh, in all of them, of course, but uh, Philemon kind of fits into this uh, more than the other ones, I think. So, um, but we're not going to talk necessarily about Philemon today. We'll get into First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, and then get to some systematics. He calls Timothy my son. Uh, you want to play with that? Wait a little bit. What does it mean by by Paul talks about his as a spiritual son, and should we call pastors fathers? Is that good, bad, indifferent? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think simply here, um, some of us can identify with this, that you have a relationship with someone uh, through whom God has used you to bring you to faith or to mentor you in the faith. Um, and it, it's the same as we call each, each, uh, each other brothers and sisters in Christ, although we aren't necessarily brothers and sisters by blood. Um, we recognize that sometimes in the faith, too, there are fathers or mothers in the faith um, we even speak of church fathers, right? Fathers from the past whose um, teaching has helped shape a clear confession of the Christian faith. Uh, and so I think it's just a, a relational thing, the role that person has had. Um, should we call someone father? Uh, I don't think there's anything biblically wrong with it. So people sometimes will grab the passage where Jesus is talking about calling the one father, but he's talking about something completely mm -hmm. different there. Um, it's not really our custom. I don't necessarily see a need to reintroduce mm -hmm. it in our circles, but I also don't have a problem with it should someone choose to do so. But, um, you know, I, for instance, uh, Pastor Verts, who, when I came into Lutheranism, he was the pastor who instructed me in the faith. He confirmed me. Um, he also ordained me. Uh, there's a relationship there in which he was a uh, a mentor. To, he wasn't just a brother or sister in Christ. He did fatherly things in the faith mm -hmm. for me, and I will be forever appreciative of that. And we can talk about father confessors and when you go to confess yeah. your sins i i would uh, I, and luther I, was called father i mean even on his deathbed yeah and he's I, returned referred to his father i really i i kind of like it i mean I, I don't like you advocate bringing it back because there's there we already have enough titles <laughs> right as pastors um but i did as i grew even though i was a young man thought more and more uh about being a father to my flock um, and especially with um, 
young young men and and, and women and uh would only half joking with uh you know my my uh catechism girls and boys and then when they got into high school um if i found out they were dating somebody i would go up and say like well who who is this guy is he being nice to you where's what family is he from does he go to church what church is going answer i'll ask all these questions you know and 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 i think uh it was kind of a humorous thing um but i would only half joking say you know you got to get my permission just like your parents permission before you start dating somebody right and they all took it the, the right way not that they had to ask permission but that i was concerned about their future that I was concerned that they would be treated well by this other person, that I was concerned that they would uh, find someday a good spouse, you know, uh, that I was concerned with their spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of whoever they were dating, right? So that fatherly aspect, I think, while we may not call ourselves fathers, and, and it doesn't matter if we do or not, but there's something there, and it's something pretty cool, and you see that in the ministry here with Paul and Timothy, but I think it can also apply uh, as well to um, uh, a pastor and his, and, and especially the children in, in, his, uh, in his congregation. All right, so uh, Timothy is an interesting guy. Timothy is, um, uh, he's half Jew and half Greek, so he grew up with the Old Testament, um, but he was not circumcised, if I remember correctly, and so he is going to be circumcised later. We know this uh, not from, from these letters, but from the uh, history of the Acts of the Apostles. And so uh, we have a situation where somebody actually does put himself under the Old Testament law for the sake of the people, and so he takes away his freedom in love for somebody else. And, and we did mention that in uh, the lesson with uh, uh, in, in the Galatians one, and then also in uh, when we talk about first and second Corinthians. So a prime example of somebody, let's be honest, as an adult, kind of really taking one for the team there, getting circumcised as, as, an, as an adult. So Timothy is charged with being a pastor, and um, he's young though. And so we both can relate to this. Uh, there were certain people in our congregations, I'm willing to bet, I know in my congregation, that uh, I hadn't paid my dues in their mind. And so there was no, they, they were going to test me. They didn't, they didn't think they were testing me, but they were testing me, right? Uh, subconsciously, they were, they were pushing the buttons. They were not, they were not going to respect me. I was going to have to earn that respect. And in some cases, I did, and in some cases in very dramatic fashions. In some cases, there was just no way that young buck was ever going to tell this old guy what to do. And it usually, it could be a, a man or woman, but typically was more male. And um, Paul has some striking words about that, right? He and he he says, uh, and since he's talking to Timothy, he's not really talking to those who are you know uh, trying to test Timothy. But he says to Timothy, "Don't let anybody." get you down because you're too young, right? And, and we can see this even just in kind of when we think about like logic and rhetoric and stuff like that, that there are certain arguments that are flawed. They're not necessarily wrong in their outcome, but they can be flawed because they appeal to something that's new or young, or they can appeal some, to something that is old and traditional. And just by the sake that it's old, it's right. Um, and, that, and that takes away from the truth. If a young person speaks truth, it's still truth, right? And if an old person who may be a stick in the mud uh, compared to, uh, or, or at least in the eyes of someone 
that is young, if they speak truth, they, they are speaking truth. Now, the person who is wise and has experience has a has a uh, an advantage there, right? Because they have broader perspective. But please let me tell you that there are plenty of people um, who are idiots, and when they get older, they're still idiots, and they may just have more practice being idiots and convincing themselves that they're right. And so the truth has to matter. And so right away, we're talking about the truth here. We also think about the pastors being mouthpieces for God. It's not about them, right? And so if you're making an ad hominem attack, that would be an attack to the person and ignoring what they're saying. Um, you're the one at fault here. You have to look at that and you may put a barrier between you and the gospel or a barrier between you and somebody else in the congregation between them and the gospel, right? Uh, the truth is the truth no matter what. The gospel is the gospel no matter what. And, and so you got to be patient with the young guy. You got to be patient with the old guy too, right? Patient with the young gal and patient with, uh, with uh, the, the older woman as well. And the question is, is it truth? Are you speaking truth? There's also temptations for Timothy and then later Titus as young pastors to want to preach what itching ears want to hear. So we might think about itching ears that they want to be scratched with what they want. So uh, they want to hear um, that everybody else is a sinner. They want to hear that they're going to have their best life now. They want to hear Pastor Timothy's 10 steps to business success or to Pastor Titus's 10 steps to a better marriage or whatever. Um, and sometimes a pastor, a lot of times a pastor has to has to cut to the heart. And so uh, don't just preach what is popular. Preach the truth, whether it is in season or out of season, whether it's popular or it's not popular. That can be very, very difficult for a pastor because he's caught up into the culture as well. And he can get on his hobby horse as well. And so it's so very important for Timothy and Titus to preach, preach the truth. In First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, we do get uh, some, let's say, um, qualifications for the holy ministry. First, let's just talk about what the holy ministry is, and then Wade, I'll ask you what are, what are some like a, kind of a checklist for back lack of a better way to put it of things that we look at in, in for pastors. Um, the ministry is, is at its core service. And so you are serving somebody else. You are God's ambassador. Um, you are called as a pastor to serve people with the word of God. This is not for your gain or anything else like that. And, and our confessions in the Lutheran church will say, this is why we have the ministry. So they have the proclamation of the gospel. So you are supposed to preach. You are supposed to teach. You are supposed to visit the sick. You are supposed to comfort in times of trouble. You are not necessarily to be a CEO, although times in bigger churches, a pastor may have to act that way. You're not just a teacher giving information, although certainly teaching is a part of it. You are to be, I think at its core, preacher, right? A proc proclaiming of, of God. And so we can look at different models of what a, what a, what a, what a, a preacher is supposed to be. You have the CEO model trying to get the people to, to do the work and you're just kind of overseeing. Um, you can have the teacher rabbi model. You're just a, a teacher uh, uh, and that's fine as far as it goes. Um, 
but I, I, a coach, you know, like coaching somebody personally, like a self-help kind of thing. Okay. But I think primarily it is a proclaimer. And so I like the word preacher. Like if I would say what I am, I would say preacher, right? Uh, a preacher, uh, not only speaking the word of God, but informs teaching it, but also giving it um, in physical ways in Holy Communion, baptism, and the proclaimer in absolution, a preacher in a big, broad thing there. There's a couple other words there that we should play with. Pastor, uh, it means shepherd, so you're shepherding a flock. We talked about that previously in the in this course when we got to John 10. Bishop is just a fancy word for overseer, and so that becomes later on in the church when you have maybe multiple house churches or pastors in, in a town like Corinth, and then there would be a bishop, an overseer of all of those. And then in the Roman Catholic Church and, and, and some Lutheran denominations, we'll talk about the bishop as the overseer of a certain territory. I kind of like to play with the word bishop and say, you know, if you're, if you're the, especially uh, the father, you're the bishop of your household right? The parent is a bishop of, of their children, an overseer of their children to make sure that they are given the word of God. And so you can rightfully say that the past, uh, that the, the father and the mother are pastors to their children in a certain sense, a bishop, an overseer. And sometimes bishop, bishop and maybe even at times elder could be uh, equated with our word today, pastor. So when we're looking for a pastor to to shepherd a flock, to be father, to be a teacher, to be preacher, to be all of these things that we have said. What are the qualifications of a preacher we're looking at, Wade? What 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 are the the checklist kind of items? <coughs> well, I mean, there's there's basic external common sense things. Um, he should be hospitable, right? Uh, no one wants to be served by a pastor who's uncomfortable being around you or you are uncomfortable being around them because they, uh, you know, they seem like they don't want you there. So hospitable, um, apt to teach, I would say with that, they should probably have um, some sense of, a, what do you call that, emotional quotient, mm -hmm. that they're, they're able to read people, get a sense for them. I think that goes with being apt to teach and hospitable. Certain amount of knowledge. <laughs> Empathy. And, you know, a certain amount of academic prowess, you know, it doesn't have to be a genius, but yeah. But then also um, somewhat seasoned. So even the young pastor is seasoned. Uh, we have seminary training. Um, there shouldn't be a new convert, right? It's someone that we know is, is kind of stuck with this. Um, and then someone who, uh, not not that they're without sin, that doesn't happen, but is not uh, going to cause scandal in the community, right? That this uh, um, they're of good character. They're known to be of good character above uh, rebuke as in like the whole town doesn't have to come together and have an intervention with your pastor right uh, and then that uh they're able to be they've demonstrated their abilities and other vocations as well so a good father or a good husband this also sometimes gets misread this doesn't mean if the pastor's kid grows up and sins mm. um as sinners will do that that somehow uh i think a pastor should be disqualified um Pastors have been called to the ministry, not their children. And sometimes the reason that PKs uh, act out is precisely because we Pastors treat them it. as if they uh, vocationally have been called into ministry when they have not. Um, but they, they should be known to be vocationally um, apt as husband and, and uh, parent. 
and I think they're meaning not necessarily that their their wife and their kids are always perfect. This is not keep your family in line, um, but that they're able to serve them as they serve their parish, uh, to not exasperate their children, to be caring, to be loving, to be forgiving, to to build up. Uh, these are some of the things that that Paul will will talk about. I, I think in in our own day, the one that probably is most important is that uh, hospitable and apt to teach. Uh, as as things get more partisan and and social media gets a uh, nastier, that that we're not creating undue barriers to people being served pastorally, uh, and that people are able to instruct people who are at different places. Um, to be able to understand what people are asking, what they're going through, um, I think that's an extremely important uh, gift for people to have today. And both of those things, by the way, being hospitable and apt to teach, are are not merely gifts that you're born with, but they're things that can be um, built up, that can be formed, that people uh, can work on. I mean, I'm guessing both of us grew in our pastoral demeanor when we interact with people uh, over time, right? You learned how to sit through awkward silence mm-hmm. um, when the conversation stopped or someone was tearing up. Uh, you learned how to come to terms with maybe you can't fix everything and you just need to listen. Being gracious with people and patience. You learned when it was appropriate to speak. Um, you learned that just because you were going to have to say something eventually, you maybe don't say it in that moment. Um, you learned that there's probably other circumstances that you don't know about at the time, especially with marriage counseling. You learned that of... It's going to take some while listening and, and seeing um, to find out what all is, is going on. Uh, so I, these are things that you grow in also. Yeah. And a couple other things, too, uh, that, that are listed, not a lover of money, right? I mean, the, the pastor should, I always thought about this when it comes to a pastor's salary. It should not be, it should not be uh, a distraction. So it can be a distraction because you don't have enough money, right? And, you, and your family's kind of become maybe embittered that they have to live in poverty um, uh, or that it's too much money. So a guy can have an up north cabin uh, and a boat, you know, and maybe a golf membership, but maybe not all three, right? Like he can't, has so much going on that he becomes distracted because he has too much money or too, too little money. So not a lover of money. Like it's good that pastors don't make a lot of money. So you don't attract people who are saying, I'm doing this so I can make money. Um, uh, uh, a husband of one wife, right? So we're talking about a male. We're talking about clearly, you know, one wife, right? Um, you know, uh, polygamy, which would have been something still lurking around in that time. Uh, clearly, that's not going to be uh, something that that's that is going to make somebody uh, a good pastor. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you. I want to go back to that one that has to do with not a new convert too. I, I think both of us had this experience where somebody comes to the church, maybe from, you know, they were, they were Christian in name only, or maybe they were literally a convert. They had nothing to know about Jesus and, and it clicks for them. And then they're on fire for Jesus for about six months. And then they realize that, well, life's still kind of life. Like there's still difficulties in this life. And uh, that, that kind of feeling that euphoria fades away and, uh, you know, you kind of watch those people and are you going to be there when, when the fire goes away and you can have somebody who's on fire for Jesus and he's ready to preach to the world, but he has not quite yet understood the theology of the cross and suffering. He has not understood the patience that it takes. The, he hasn't uh, understood in, those things. In Lubin, 
Paul Gerhardt, the great hymn writer, um, was called to Lubin after he was removed from his parish in Berlin because he uh, spoke out against the Union of Lutheran Reformed Churches um, in Mittenwalde, where he had served before he had buried, uh, I mean, I think more than half of his congregation because of the plague. Some of his kids die. His wife goes a little bit crazy over that. Um, and uh, so he ends up in Lubin, and they're kind of described as a, a cold and unwelcoming people. And on the, the painting there, uh, or the whatever the illustration is by his grave, it says a theologian sifted in the devil's sieve. <laughs> and I think that's a good way of putting it, is not a new convert because you, you kind of have to be sifted in the devil's sieve. You, you have to recognize that that initial fire you feel upon conversion uh, and the enthusiasm, that's going to wax and wane, and that that's okay, mm-hmm. um, that you're going to have tentatio. Um, and not only that you, you realize that God can bring you through it, um, but that your people are going to have that too. Yeah, Sorry so, for interrupting. No, you, that's but. perfect. So a sieve, you know, like <clears throat> sieving something. I think you're making macaroni and cheese yeah, and you put yeah. the noodles in that thing. And it's a reference to Jesus saying that to Peter, correct, right? right? And uh, tentatio is uh, in German, anfektun, it's uh, a struggle, angst. We yeah. don't have a good word for it in English. Temptation, but, suffering, testing, yeah. anxiety, yeah. And so uh, a new convert's probably not a good idea to put that person in leadership even though they may be the person that is most energetic at that moment right and maybe even is kind of looking with an incredulous eye at the seasoned pastor or leadership and why are you not more excited about this you know and they understand that you can't you can't go out to people and be like why aren't you excited about this and shake them? You know, I mean, it can be a turnoff too, that you have to be a little bit more pastoral there. So good. Those are the qualifications for, for ministry. I'd like to switch gears here and talk about the means of grace and we'll go through each of them. But first I want to define what a means is. So if I say to you, to the students, you know, if, if, they were coming to class face to face. I would say, by what means of transportation did you get here? Some of you said, well, I walked from my dorm room. Some said, I drove my car. I rode the bus. I rode a, bo- uh, a bike. We understand that that word means is kind of something, something goes through something. This is, this is the instrument that is, that brings me to a different place or, or it, it's uh, the, the education is the means to then becoming a well-rounded person or whatever. So when we say the means of grace, quite literally, we're saying, how is grace delivered, right? And so I'll ask, uh, I used to ask catechism students, you know, how are you saved? Jesus died on the cross, whatever. And I go, you know what, Mike? What? Someone posted a video of a, an Italian priest who was live streaming mass because of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. But he actually accidentally turned on the, the filters where like you become like a cat face. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so remind me, we should watch that after we're done recording. I wish... I wish Timoth- uh, Paul would have told Timothy that one of the qualifications for a pastor is to be technologically savvy. Yeah. That would I think there's going to be a lot of good videos like this that come out as we're learning where... <laughs> Sorry, but go ahead. Like, apt to teach, technologically savvy, not a yeah. lover of money. That would have been good. Um, so I would say to the catechism students, yes, you're right. Jesus died on the cross, and we talk about the vicarious atonement and Jesus... Re- perfect life replacing our imperfect life. He goes to the cross, pay a price for our sins. And then, and then I would, every time I go, well, isn't that great? But that was 2000 years ago, halfway across Mike the globe. Mike is making a right. sarcastic hand gesture and, with his arms out. And I do it every class period, yeah. you know? And so they would remember me saying, I'm like, well, isn't that just fancy that Jesus died on the cross for you, but you don't live in Israel in, you know, 33 AD. You live in 
for our Milwaukee in 2020. So how is that going to get to you? How do you even know, right? And so we think of maybe even crudely like a, a pipe going from, from the cross to us. How am I going to know? How is it going to be delivered to me? And these means by which God's undeserved love, grace, gets to me are four. The Holy Word, Holy Baptism, Holy Communion, and Holy Absolution. And Wade, we've talked about this before, but maybe you could answer this for the students. Are, you, are we saying that God is, is limited? He can only use these means of grace? Why, why, why is he limited that way? Yeah, there's the distinction is we don't bind God to the means of grace. God has bound himself to the means of grace. So it's not that we are saying God is not free to deal with man however he should choose to. Um, God could choose to convert someone on a mountaintop by them humming for 10 years barefoot. He just hasn't promised to do that. Go ahead and try if you want. God may well work through it. Um, But God has bound himself to the means of grace precisely so that we know where to find him, so that he can be found. Um, We don't limit him, but he does, in a sense, limit himself to that. Um, We know, you read the Bible and you learn, he can can work through a burning bush if he wants to. Um, But this is for our own good. Where where can we find God? It's the same as uh, if you go into a grocery store. I don't know what grocery store all of our students have when they're back home. But let's, let's say you go in Meijer, um, Meyer could put things wherever they want. They could put the canned peas with the diapers, and they could put the um, socks with the uh, milk. Sometimes I wonder. It seems kind yeah. of intuitive sometimes, but yeah. But I, ideally, a good grocery store is going to put things where you can find them, mm-hmm. right? So also God is, has chosen to put himself um, with a preacher with bread and wine and with water, and that is for our own good. Now, the sad part is we easily become bored with those means of grace, uh, but I would say that's not much different than any good thing in life. We often become bored with the very best things in life. Um, we can become bored with our marriage. We can become bored with our children. Education. Bored with our friends or with our education. Um, the problem that at those times is not with those things with which we've become bored, but with our disposition toward them. So I, I would sometimes tell my people, for instance, the liturgy is not boring. You're, you're boring, boring. <laughs> right? And, uh, and so the means of grace are not boring. Uh, we're boring. But think about what a, what a terrifying thing it would be otherwise to not know where to find God. And the fact is that when we find God outside of the means of grace, we usually find either a false God or an angry God. <clears throat> and, uh, and so God wants to be found in his grace and mercy. And so it's for our own good that he's bound himself. Should uh, should God come to us in a burning bush in our own lives? We'll deal with it when it comes. But in the meanwhile, we fully know where he will be for sure. And so we gather there uh, in person or during the coronavirus virtually. And I should be skeptical if I think God's coming in a different way. I should right. be skeptical about that uh, because I know. Well, and even Moses sure. wasn't like, look, a bur- yeah. oh, it must be God. Right. I should be He's like, what in the world is skeptical this, of that? This bush isn't being devoured by this fire. I'm gonna, my cell service isn't working. I'm going to go, <laughs> go look at this. So God chooses to limit himself 
the Spirit doing this work of salvation. And by the way, for your convenience, we pastors do it every Sunday morning for you. You know exactly where we're going to go. A couple other things with that. Think about this as the Holy Spirit's tools. So the Spirit's got a toolbox. How is he going to do that? Is he just going to zap you? No, it's going to be through the Word of God, baptism, Holy Communion, and absolution. The other thing to think about uh, with this is that these were readily available. So you talked about how you don't have to climb a high mountain and find some kind of enlightenment. That's pretty vague, right? Or I don't need to look out into the world and have an experience with God. You may see the beauty and wonder of God, but then you're going to have to reconcile tornadoes, hurricanes, and viruses with that. It's not going to end with uh, an undeserved grace of, of God dying on the cross. And notice it. So it wasn't gold or silver either. It wasn't just for the wealthy. It was the staples of the Mediterranean world. Oil, which is not really connected, but oil was connected with the anointing of the of the sick and had a connection to baptism. You know, bread, wine, words. I mean, it's it's physical. It's simple. It's accessible to everybody, right? This is not. God is being very gritty in this way, which is his MO, his modus operandi that we've seen throughout the Old and New Testaments. Now, um, let's go through each of these four means of grace. Uh, and I should define the word sacrament just for a little bit. Uh, so the word of God, we understand that one. The next three are rightfully called sacraments. <clears throat> now, sacrament, that word is not really found in the Bible. Uh, in the English Bible, although it's in the Latin Bible, sacramentum. Sacramentum would have been kind of like, uh, it would be used to describe like an oath, a uh, soldier made going into the army kind of thing. It was, it was something sacred. There, there's, a, there's words involved in it kind of thing. And it, it got co-opted in the church to describe something that was sacred. So some Christians, like in the Eastern Orthodox, depending on who you talk to, may, may use the word sacrament or sacramental um, as something that was holy and sacred. Anything it could be prayer, it could be giving to the, whatever. But most uh, would define it in the East and then and also in the Roman Catholic churches as seven. So you have baptism, um, you're going to have absolution, you're going to have confirmation, you're going to have holy communion, ordination, marriage, and then last rites or extreme unction. Lutherans uh, were a little bit weary of that sacramental because it came, became a sacramental system where you did this and then you kind of got credit with God in the medieval church. And so they went back to the scriptures and they say, where can we find something that's physical, like bread and wine or water, and that is a, has a, a word attached to it, a promise? And this was not, this was something that other Christians in the past, not like Lutherans figured this out, but they were going back to the scriptures and they noticed other church fathers saying this. And so one way to think about a sacrament is a physical thing like water tied to a promise of God's word. I baptize you. This is for the forgiveness of sins. And that equals God grace. So if you really want to simplify it and do it in a mathematical equation, God's word plus a physical element equals God's grace. However, I think we would we would think at least we should, as a means of grace, absolution could also be talked about as a sacrament, even though it doesn't have a physical sign to it. It does have a physicality to it where the, the preacher is speaking the words, I forgive you all of your sins. In fact, our theologians will talk about Old Testament sacraments uh, in the sense not that they give and deliver forgiveness of sins like, the, like a means of grace in New Testament sacrament, but there's a physical sign like the rainbow after uh, you know uh, the, the flood and God 
said, look at that rainbow. I promise never, I promise never to flood the earth like this again, or circumcision was a seal of the promise uh, of that was given to Abraham's children of family, land, and savior. So we got to be careful how we define this. Uh, in one way, I, I think uh, sometimes we think of uh, the mystery of Christ as a sacrament. So who is finally the sacrament? Well, it's Christ who became flesh and, and delivers grace. And then you have sacramental signs, that things that God uses. So we don't need to know that, just sort of kind of the background there. And we think about here are the four ways then that God has promised to be with forgiveness of sins, the word of God, the Bible, baptism. And so Titus 3, 5, we didn't get to this uh, uh earlier in the in the lesson but he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the holy spirit holy communion do this uh you know for the forgiveness of sins and then holy absolution in john chapter 20 jesus says if you forgive anyone their sins they are forgiven and notice the institution of these sacraments i mean the word of god is all over the place of course and and the basis of these sacraments the water doesn't do anything unless it's attached to word bread and wine is just bread and wine unless it has the word of god attached to it um but notice that um that when these were instituted there were big events at the end of jesus life and so baptism was always around but he he commands go baptize all nations uh, you know, go, go make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing and teaching them. So baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is loosely connected with his ascension as he is ascending into heaven. He gives this command to the church. Communion uh, during his passion, Monday, Thursday night, right? Where he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. And then absolution on Easter when uh, he is appearing to his disciples as a resurrected Lord. Uh, they are hiding behind closed doors and locked windows. And he says, if you forgive their sins, they are forgiven, right? And so notice how God is being also very close to us. In baptism, he's washing us, but also in Romans chapter six, we see that's a death and resurrection into him. What could be more intimate than being buried with somebody and rising with somebody? Holy communion, it's actually his body and blood being given to him. heaven and earth are crashing together. How intimate is that? And then in absolution, uh, pastors are trained to say, I forgive you, not God forgives you. And not that the pastor is the, is the thing that, that actually forgives, it's not grounded in the pastor, but God saying, it's as if I'm saying it, right? These are my representatives. There's no degree of separation between the repentant person and the one who forgives sin. So, um, I, that's a kind of an overview of the ministry, the means of grace, and those things are tied, right? The ministry is nothing without the means of grace. I, I'm not sure what a pastor is doing without the means of grace. Probably just robbing these people of a salary, right? Give them the goods, preach the gospel, uh, feed them with Holy Communion, baptize, and absolve them. Uh, that's the goal, and uh, there are certain qualifications for the pastor. Notice it doesn't say good-looking or super charming or wealthy or anything like that, but there are certain things that he has to be above rebuke, can't be a lover of money or a drunkard, um, uh, can't be a womanizer, uh, the three things that men tend to get themselves into trouble with, right? If you if you notice what, what men get in trouble with, those are the three things that a pastor should not be taken by, um, by drink, by, by women. Uh, uh, sexual desire outside of, of marriage or money. Um, he should not be somebody who is not hospitable. You know, uh, you can think about power there. Maybe the other 
major temptation for specifically men, right? He should have some ability to, to, to teach as well and not uh, a new convert, uh, somebody who's on fire for Jesus but is not seasoned in that way. But primarily he is going to be the spokesman of God to deliver, that is the means of grace, deliver grace using the Holy Spirit's tool. So thanks for listening, students, and anybody else who uh, dropped in to listen to this lesson. We're almost done with uh, with uh, semester by the time we get to this. Uh, next time we're going to do some things that are, have to do with the end times, eschatology, but also the study of the church before we finish our semester here. So until next time, uh, keep working hard, be safe, love your neighbor, and let the bird fly.